welcome to Analysia in a Goldilocks, how to get it just right. Today's conversation is about immigration and professionals transitioning from education to workplace in the United States or in other countries. And how does this process work? And how is it experienced through the eyes of a young person or an adult going through the educational program? And how is this shaped by public policy? And what can we do to be supportive in building a better workplace, a better community where there is diversity of thought, diversity of solutioning, and the ability to continuously improve our society and our workplace so that we have bright and innovative minds being brought into the mix for continuous growth and improvement. Because we know that is exactly how countries like the United States was built. So let's take the blueprint that has already worked for us and let's see how we perfect it and improve it instead of trying to destroy it and break it down because that is not always going to be good for the underlying economy. And to have this important conversation with me is a young gentleman who has gone through the U.S. education system who is a STEM major who is focused on technology and technology-based solutioning. Anup, Anup Gunawardana, welcome to Unleash in a Goldilocks. Thank you for having me on. It's quite a pleasure to be here. And I do think the adjectives bright and innovating are probably two of my better experiences of immigration here. Thank you very yeah. much for those words. And I agree, it's a conversation that has to be had because every year the amount of students that come here both grow in number and also grow in variation, both in the majors they choose to do, the jobs they choose to work. So this is a conversation worth having. And the longer we put it off, the longer we make the system more unnavigatable for people that can both make this country better and also enrich themselves. Absolutely. So I know before we get started, I would love for you to take a moment and give a brief history of what, how you got to the United States, what have you been doing and what you have majored in or what are you graduating with? Um, of course. So it all started back in 2018 when I came here for college. I initially got into the University of California, San Diego, which is the second school I got into. And I, I never looked beyond that, which is probably the first mistake a lot of students make when they immigrate to the United States. They have a school in mind and they think that's all they're going to get. There's a lot more things that people have to take into account. Um, the environment they settle into and how painful or painless that transition is going to be and what that looks like on you going back home, associating with people you came with or associating with people that are there. So multiple parts of this process should be addressed from the very start, from the very start from when you go into college before you even arrive onto the country. That was my first mistake. But just kind of describing how the rest of the process looks, I came here for college. I wrapped up earlier this spring, March, with a degree in computer engineering. And now I can I currently work as a tech consultant in an embedded systems company where I am currently the only embedded systems engineer. So I have quite, I'd say, a unique perspective on both the academic transition and how employment looks early on. But at the same time, I'd say there are a lot of working parts, a lot of moving parts I've not been exposed to, and I'm lucky to have not been exposed to them. Beautiful. So as you're transitioning in, for disclosure, you're Sri Lankan. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you had a different culture, different background, 
and you are here in the United States, as you are going through the transition, what did the transition from university to your current workplace, which is part of your practical training work visa, right? So the United States process works when you finish your degree, you get a one-year practical training. And if you're a STEM major, you get an extension for that. And then that gives an opportunity for the employers to test you out and then sponsor you because you've proven not only shown your academic credentials, but you've proven your transition to the workplace. What does that look like? And what advice do you have for both students trying to navigate it and the citizens of this country who are voting to shape public policy from your perspective? The metaphor I describe is a ladder of firsts. Everything is a first. And then the next thing beyond that is also a first. There is moving away from your family living in a different country, away from your parents, like for the first time in your life ever. And then learning how to cope, like integrate yourself with a different society and assimilate well for the first time ever. Taking really hard courses for the first time ever. Navigating the legal system by yourself because affording a lawyer is ridiculous. And although most schools do provide enough counseling advice, they are often underwrought by the sheer amount of students that go visit them. And they are, I'd say, as a norm, widely underfunded, and that should be addressed. But that also just contributes to the idea of everything you interact with being a first. But the only consolation and comfort I can take from that is you get so used to doing all these firsts that the next first thing doesn't become as daunting to you anymore. You just realize it's like, this is just another step in your journey, and you've done unfamiliar things before. That's what I would describe my experience as, becoming familiar with the unfamiliar becoming settled with the unsettlement. So that's how my experience has been. And that's what the law should be for everyone here, unless they completely extrapolated and thought of every possible way this could play out when they first came here, which is honestly impossible. There's no way you can account for everything and do that. So it's going to be a ladder of firsts and that'll, that's its comfort and its boon at the same time. Absolutely. So as you are talking about it, I've been through this same journey multiple years ago, 29 years ago. And so what's coming up for me is how did, how has this journey shaped you? And what have you learned about yourself? Because there's no way you're not going to transform internally your heart, mind, and your entire spirit. Well, the benefit is imposter syndrome. I, I feel as well. If it's not related to just cultural differences and an inability to assimilate, imposter syndrome is much rarer among us because we're so used to doing all these things that a lot of other kids don't have to deal with. We're so used to having these deadlines in the back of our heads, these guillotines swinging down if we don't achieve our goals at any moment, sending us back home. So we're used to all these things. Therefore, we have a sense of belonging that we deserve to be here, and we're going to work hard to maintain our position here. So imposter syndrome is largely a thing I don't associate with. No matter what role is thrown at me, I have complete confidence that I can learn how to do this if I don't know how to do it. And if I know how to do it, extend my knowledge far more than I ever have been. So imposter syndrome not being there is a great thing. But there's a several, I'd say, there's a significant amount of other drawbacks in which you don't quite understand until you're through it. For instance, I, for uh, one didn't know that there were several easier ways I could have done things, several much better ways I could have approached people to discuss my legal issues instead of waiting until the last moment and 
I'd say, escalating it to the highest level. There were so many other sources of information that I could have looked for, but I didn't know how to find because they weren't readily available. So there are advantages, like I just mentioned, but also significant drawbacks that come with a level of ignorance that's almost absorbed by everyone nowadays, both in the system going through it and people design and who are supposed to help them are also quite ignorant, I'd say. Mm -hmm. So what kind of mindset do you, looking back, what kind of mindset would have helped you? Well, this is going to sound cliche, but I should have just been humble. You know, there is not a better mindset to approach any series of problems, in my opinion, than a humble one, one in which you are straight up going to put your hand up and say, I don't know anything. Teach me everything or show me the way and I'll learn how to do it myself. I feel like that's the best way to approach this kind of situation, because when things are bad, they may not always be that bad. For instance, one quarter, I believe back in 2021, one of my grades for a single course, which I needed to maintain my status as an international student, had, was teetering beyond slipping a required boundary. And I was worried because this was due to unforeseen circumstances and I might be sent home. And I, I thought there was any nuance that in the system that I love for that. And that there wasn't at the time. But I pursued additional methods. I approached it from a different angle by discussing things with a friend of mine who was able to ship things to a therapist in under a different way in order to get that sort of situation passed through. So there are different ways you can approach things for when nuance isn't available to address your situation, which honestly is a very common situation. So if there's anything structurally that should change, that should involve your mindset, it's the nuance system allows its students. But if your mindset needs something, it's robustness. You need to be robust. You need to be able to move on from things and consider situations analytically and not jump to conclusions emotionally at first. Because <laughs> like I mentioned, when there's this guillotine swinging over your head at all moments, it's quite often easy to be impulsive. Mm -hmm. And it's hard if you're being alone in a country without your family, knowing who to trust, uh, realizing I have to build those relationships from ground up. And even when I have those relationships, I don't want to ask and disturb them or I don't want to bother them. This is my problem. So these are the internal conversations that are happening. And I would reiterate your message be humble, ask for help. One of the biggest success traits of people who do well in life, whether they're immigrants or not, is they know to ask for help. And realizing asking for help is not weakness. Actually asking for help is self-awareness and courage wrapped together. Well, so how do you feel there, coming out of this in terms of how you have evolved as a young human with the ability to take your courage and your self-awareness and show up in a way that you can ask for help and offer help? Well, that's a very good question because I wouldn't know how to answer it unless I'm encountered with more scenarios in which I do need help. And knock on wood, I haven't come across many since yet. But the last time I did, I was able to leverage everything I've learned and everything I felt, which is much more important in the situation. Remembering how I felt when things looked bad and seemed bad in another situation where they were about to be, and then leveraging that confidence and calmness to ask for help was, I'd say, life-changing. So more than just the experience of being humble, the experience of going through that fear and understanding that it doesn't always have to end badly and how to deal with that fear was just as important, in my opinion. 
Brilliant, because that is one thing even employers are looking for, right? You go, we as an organization are going to encounter things as the world, technology, society, everything is rapidly changing. Fear is healthy, but how do you channel it to solve the problem at hand? And how do you build resiliency and know when to collaborate and how to ask for help and how to be of help so that the organization thrives? So these are what we call human skills or life skills in the workplace, soft skills. And 80% of an organization's success and a person's professional success is directly correlated to this category of human skills that are all rooted in emotional intelligence that show up as resilience, agility, flexibility, scalability, all of that. So jumping off of that, what are some of the ideal careers for somebody in your background? And what would be the right path to your ultimate dream? Where do you see yourself and what can be that path? So it's funny, uh, the transition that you want me to have isn't related to anything you've just said, because the things you just described and the mindset that is necessary to overcome the challenges that you and I have faced is not often found in where I want to work. Uh, soft skills and emotional intelligence are often lacking in software engineering and the tech industry as a whole. And that's somewhat, you know, led to several issues in accountability within the industry, whether it comes to data privacy and cybersecurity, because a lot of people aren't able to sort of understand how to approach things and how to communicate, collaborate well. And that sort of mentality bleeds into the product they built because these aren't just products the same way I'd say we buy stuff from the store. These are society changing products. These are things that have a wide scope and reach and effect. So therefore the mentality used to create them has to reflect the mentality that they will once again persist in society. So therefore that aura of soft skill, collaboration, communication, knowing when to be humble and ask to help, it's very rarely to my experience present in the software industry. And it's, a, it's the reason why we have a lot of backlogs and a lot of delays in a lot of our products. And that often does lead to the products as well. Once again, being defective in public and once again, affecting society. So the transition, well, I'm glad I had this experience first. So I was able to build these skills and able to just grasp the problem seeking and all humble learning mentality necessary to just correct my practices and make sure I'm a better developer and how that would just channel my path. Well, I do believe the end goal for me is product management. If I go to the developer side, go to um, the front end, forward facing or back facing, I want to end up being in product management. And I feel the way I'm currently approaching, which is going to software testing at the moment, will give me a better holistic view of all the parts involved in product management. And that's how I want to approach it. Mm -hmm. So product testing sounds very similar to what auditing will look like in accounting. You look at the whole process, you look at the whole experience, and you test out to see what's working, what's not working, where do we tweak, where do we modify, right? So as you're going through this process, are you looking at only the technical delivering is one part of the question. And the other part of the question is what needs to be integrated into testing so that the long range social impact is also tested. And the reason I say that is there's enough research to show that Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok 
they are low low value content in 60 second snippets which is decreasing the attention span of people and creating this virtual euphoria for a short time right and people are willing to do anything for those likes and followership it's almost like a currency but it's not fulfilling at a deeper spiritual soul at a deep level and therefore loneliness and mental health and everything else is being impacted because there's a social ramification and people who built this knew this and didn't care so how do you see the testing also eventually including the social impact so this is unfortunately symptomatic of a larger trend in industry so whenever something's released to the public the social effects are there immediately if not within a week but they're addressed years if not months later for instance um would anyone here happen to know when twitter first started banning people for hate speech would anyone happen to know? It was three years after those sites launched. So if you were to cycle back to a version of Twitter in the 20, early 2010s, you'd find nothing that's differentiable from an online forum populated by kids today. Just vile. That's what it was back in the day. And they only addressed it when it became a concern pressing enough for them to do it. But it was a problem the moment they created Twitter. They adjusted things like the font size before they adjusted things like social conduct. So this is unfortunately a thing when it comes to technology. The social ramifications are addressed only when they're pressing and only when they're large enough, not when they're created, which should be when they're addressed, which should be the address when testing things, which should be the address when developing things, which should be, I'd say, what we should strive towards. But unfortunately, a lot of organizations don't incorporate it today into their models, but it should be. And I think there's ways we can micro do that in the industry today. For instance, people are talking about the use of AI in testing soon. I think that with current testing methods, we should strive to make sure that they're inclusive, that they uphold social standards, and most importantly, they answer these three questions really well. What am I building? How am I building it? And who am I building it for? Once you have a clear view of all those three things and how those three things are affected, including the wider socioeconomic status of things and how that's affected too with the actions you're making, and all that is taught to an AI really well, I feel like testing would be at a standard required to make sure society is better for all the products made through software. That is a very important point you're making, right? Why are we making it? Just like anything we're doing, we need to ask the question, why? But one of the things that always fascinates me is when you look at the cultural dimensions of the world, the Western mindset is always going to, what am I getting out of this? What is my ROI, right? If you start talking about why we tune the Western mind off, but the world we come from, the Eastern mind will not even start unless they understand the why. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why is it important now? Right? So for us, if somebody says, here is the ROI, we already say, you know what? This is just a money-making record. I don't want to get involved. Right? So there is that East versus West mind shift, shift difference. But at the same time, there are enough of people from the East in this technology world somehow getting absorbed and assimilated into the Western work culture. I know you're young 
you talk very mature, but you're very young, right? You're not even 30 yet. So you're in your mid-20s, early to mid-20s. So with that mature mindset, where do you think we can help people balance that why and what side by side? Because what we are doing and what we are getting out of it really doesn't matter if we are not addressing the why first. So I think this will happen organically as it has had over the time with good leadership, wherever. Good values are not going to be taught. They're not going to just appear to people. They have to be taught to people. So I think good leadership in software development teams, in the like the organization's front-facing board of directors, in just every level, at every possible interaction with software engineering that company has, has to have good leadership, leadership which embodies these principles. For instance, the best managers are the ones that take ownership, regardless of the result, and don't pass the buck. And often, and oftentimes, that isn't the case in a couple of software development teams that I've been in. So I feel like even a slight change like that, having principled individuals at the top at any level will prickle down and will transform the industry. But it would take time because, like I mentioned, there aren't enough people like that in the industry nowadays. And especially with the rate of which people are being turned over and not being a part of teams as consistently as they were before. You'd work at one company one year and another one in two years. And that's just how I'd say the current cycle is. But until we have stability, until we have good people at every level, I think we're a little, a bit too far from reconciling the Eastern, Eastern and the Western values, but we need people that can reconcile them and we need them fast. Mm-hmm. So you make a good point. When work is run as projects and everybody is on a team for a project and then they roll off the project and go to another company for another initiative. So we are all like vagabonds, right? We're going from location to location to location. It's kind of gypsies in the workplace, right? We don't, we don't belong to anything other than our family and our social environment. And we pop in and out of workplaces. And that's the nature of the software world. But it is also a world of continuous improvement, innovation, and quality assurance. Mm -hmm. So how do we take that continuous improvement, quality assurance, and innovation mindset that is needed technically, and then also bring it into the soft skills? Because we can't bifurcate a human saying, when it comes to your technical skills, I want you to be this way. But when it comes to everything else, how you're wired, don't worry about it. You can't do that. I feel like we're going to see that soon because harkening back to something you mentioned before, the social ramifications of the lack of all these things that's catching up. It's reminding us that we need to consider these things. So while the software industry as a whole, like a whole, just remains a, like a thundering freight train, just going into their profits at all, at, at maximum speed, there's going to be a slowdown eventually where the profits are going to have to be like weighed against these social ramifications. And one of the alternatives they could consider when that happens is this open-mindedness, is this inclusivity and ethics first, I'd say, viewpoint that you're describing. So I can't say for sure it'll happen, but something will when we have to start considering the social ramifications of what we're doing, which is happening now. It's happening. It's finally catching up with us. So it could be one of the things we pursue. I can't for say sure it will be, but I hope it is. Mm -hmm. 
I just attended a um, artificial intelligence for the future conference. And one of the gentlemen who presented was the professor from Canada whose student innovated ChatGPT. And ChatGPT was innovated for a purpose. It's being used in all kinds of purposes. As a professor, I'm seeing students submitting papers with ChatGPT and students don't realize we have tools. We have AI embedded tools to tell us if this was AI generated or human generated and how many words sequence came from what source. We can do all of that, right? So one of the things he talked about is in this accelerated artificial intelligence world, how even US is, US and other countries are looking at military being AI enabled and the fear understandably, is the fact that if the AI is programmed to continuously improve and eliminate inefficiencies and make sure that the task at hand is fulfilled the best way possible, as quickly as possible for the best return on investment possible, at some point that machine-based mechanism is going to look at the humans and say, oh, you make mistakes, you take time off, you're inefficient, so we're going to eliminate you because you're part of the problem in the current setup. And because I am empowered, I am going to keep moving forward and I've already eliminated you. The human elimination of the process and AI taking over is the singular fear. And at that point, anybody with hate speech is going to be the enemy depending on what side the AI has decided is right, right? Because there is, if you truly look at the world, there it's not black or white, it's not right or wrong. It's very nuanced. And in that nuanced world, can AI be very, very careful? I just read an article, actually just saw a presenter talk about, they went into chat GPT and gave a, question about should the Palestinians deserve autonomy and self-governance? And ChatGPI's response is everybody deserves it, but how it's going to happen needs to be thought through, worked through. It was a very um, non, non-position position, okay? But when the same question was asked about the Jewish people, and Israel, the answer was very precise. Yes, they needed autonomy. They needed safety. They needed their own country, right? So even artificial intelligence is picking sides based on where the nuance of the programming is. Okay? Yes. So that's a fear. And this is what the professor talked about. And he's asked his student who developed ChatGPTI to figure out a way to put controls in place so that the human is not eliminated from the process by the AI. It's still a work in process. Well, there's a that's a very complicated question which touches on a lot of different things, all of which I'm interested in. So let's jump to the first. So AI as it is today isn't really intelligent. It's just pattern recognition. So what you see is unfortunately what's on the internet. And therefore, it's a reflection of who we are rather than what AI is, that the AI is this biased. And at some level, it could be intentional. It could be done 
in on the factory floor. It could be intentionally chosen to be this biased. I'm not saying that isn't possible. It is. But far and large, these biases already exist. They're emblematic. And that's what used to train the AI. That's irresponsible at some level. However, the larger question of addressing the ethics of AI in the long run. I think AI in the long run situation described of it, you know, deciding that we're redundant or inefficient and we should be out of the way. That is very, very late stage capitalist. So a lot of people, when they fear AI, fear of capitalism is wielded by someone other than a human being on humans. That's what it is. Because AI would simply make a decision. You're not profitable anymore. You don't work as fast. You don't work as smart. You don't lift a lot. You don't walk a lot. Why am I dealing with you? I can do this myself. So that's the same rhetoric a uh, owner or the owner of a uh, group of means and services would take when choosing to redoubt, like downsize or reduce the amount of employees they have. So it's the very same rhetoric and the very same analysis used by AI if it were to destroy us to destroy us. So that's why we fear it, because we don't recognize that power being used by someone that's not us. That's why you know, that's why we fear it. And I think that's a very interesting perspective into who we are as creatures and why we should change ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. And the gentleman I watched the interview once started his uh, piece saying uh, AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. It is what society feeds and it just takes the majority opinion. So it's funny you you're saying it in a different way so i would love to open this up for a conversation with our live audience we've touched on a lot of things go ahead robin okay wow this is really interesting um i'm going to go back to your work uh your your the experiences that you described and then going into your future work um how do you think you could use, because you talked about that, that everything is a first. And I'm wondering, you know, from that perspective, when you become a manager and you talked about you're someday becoming a manager, how do you think you could use the experiences that you had um, to make you be a better manager? Kind of looking at the, again, the integration of the human with the, the technical. I guess the first thing I could do is realize a lot of other people that I'd be working with or over are also going through a lot of firsts. So I guess the first thing that would come from my experience is compassion. And I'd use that, I'd say, quite well and wield it not only as something to uh, make people feel more comfortable, but also motivate them to work better. Because compassion does often lead to reward and that does often lead to productivity. So I think it's not only good as a humane element to have, it's also quite profitable. So I think that's definitely something I'd use. And another thing I'd say that I take, I've taken away from my experiences that I would use in my role quite well is an understanding of people, understanding of who we're building the product for, who I'm working with, and to whom I respond to, basically. Um, all the stakeholders involved, I'd approach them with a much better understanding of what they want out of this and what they're implicitly affected by as well, not simply the ROI. And that was only possible because I've been... <laughs> having to ask people for help. I'd been having to go help people in my situation. This constant, I'd say, transaction of looking for help and helping people when you're an international student, it does translate to understanding people better and make sure those connections are more interpersonal. And I think that would benefit me a lot as a product manager. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. 
What a wonderful question, Robin. Thank you. Go ahead, Precious. Yes. Good morning. I appreciate this so much, um, Anupa. I appreciate your your wisdom and your making it just very plain and able to be understood. You made a point earlier about leadership skills being taught. And I think it was on the heels of when you all were comparing the principles and practices in the Eastern world and the Western world. Not sure we talked about TikTok. There were some things in there. But when you spoke about it having to be taught so that it could be implemented throughout the leadership program, um, my question is, where would you say this would be taught? Um, and, and I'm saying that from the perspective of, of what you've come from and, and Dr. Cass as well and comparing the different worlds and, and the emphasis, it was about the why versus the what. Those things were taught, not in the leadership program. They were taught in your lifestyle practices and your, your cultural environment and growing up. The people who are governing some of these spaces, although, as Cass says, they are integrated. There are a lot of Eastern mix within the Western world when, when it comes to some of these um, technological programs, I mean, platforms. Um, that, But that was key to me, that it's to be taught. But my question is, where is it even learned for some of the, the people who are implementing these these um, practices that now we are recognizing that are harmful, but may, they may not care about it. What's your perspective on when that would be taught or it has been taught, if at all? Right. Um, so there's usually two ways I think people are taught things. They're informed by consequence, which is they learn from their mistakes, or they're taught something by someone that learned from their mistakes. So at, at the end of the day, I think the thing that necessitates learning is consequences. And we're really lucky now, specifically in software engineering, to finally arrive at our consequences. They're here. TikTok, like you mentioned, AI potentially being um, biased towards certain people. These are consequences, they're here. And it is up to us to realize that this is not an opportunity to fix them, an opportunity to learn from them as well. So in a way, I'm quite glad all these things are happening, all these problems are surfacing because it's an opportunity to learn these leadership skills for the first time for some people and maybe remember them for other people. So consequence informs, I'd say, better mentality, better values, and often better people. So, and we're here, it's time to learn. <laughs> Let me ask you this, if I may. So the consequences impact the us or the them. Um, I think sometimes depending on leadership, if they if those consequences affect a certain demographic, <laughs> but when they come home, then sometimes it's, a, it's different. That's been my observation. Do you see that having any validity? I, I actually go on to add on to that. I feel like the people, the why they were able to escape their consequences so for so long is because they're insulated from them. If you look at the profile of a developer and the profile of the people they make the product for, they're wildly different. A developer is never mm -hmm. good to come across, I'd say on average, the same problems the person that is affected by the product they're making comes across. So they've been insulated from this for a very long time. Now they're finally starting to understand because it's become a concern to the point where they can't ignore it anymore. So it's long overdue. And I think the them is affected way sooner than the us from a developer standpoint. And that's been a problem that has to be addressed. You need more people from like, I'd say more inclusive backgrounds that understand what the them are going to look like while they're the us. And unfortunately, that's quite hard to come by, but it is changing. Yeah, thank you. I love the question and I love where going with the answer, Anna. It was interesting. I was in a networking meeting for a charity and I introduced myself as the board of director for a not-for-profit that drives emotional intelligence and human uh, capability development for K through 12 children. 
And there was this older African-American gentleman who latched onto that. It was an introduction at a networking meeting. The whole meeting, he just went at me saying, I'm indoctrinating children. And I, I didn't take his own tone and get into it, but I just asked open-ended questions because I am an educator. And as I asked open-ended questions, what came out is he's afraid that he is going to lose control of his generation and his way of life, the way he was raised. And he believes that education is nothing but indoctrination and therefore being taught is a bad thing. Anything you need to learn needs to happen in your church and in your home. And when he says you need to learn from church, he meant only the Christian church, by the way. The rest of it doesn't matter. And so that is part of the problem we're going to have to deal with, right? When you look at the people who are impacted in society, they are women, they are minorities, they are immigrants, right? They are never the male of the population because the male of the population has set up the rules, right? And so we are going to see as the world changes, those who have been in that privileged, isolated spot to tell the rest of the world what it's going to be are getting afraid, which is why we're seeing all of these things bubbling up to the surface. And to me, it's almost like the last gasp as you are afraid you're going to drown in the water you filled up to drown everybody else. Mm hmm and that itself is going to be transformational, but we all need to have the patience to navigate it and not turn around and do to others what was done to us, because that is also key. I think a part of what you're describing is because, once again, unfamiliarity. Like you said, they're not willing to give up what could be their last chance of things. But this wasn't always the case. When Y2K and I'd say the steam engine were about to happen. There were people trying to clutch on to the old days, but there were people also pushing for new, newer things. It's just right now, everyone who's someone seems to be on the other side of things. And people that want to push for new things are not as quite powerful and notable. So it would take a little more time, but it will happen. This is just another economic, socioeconomic cycle that I see happening, where someone has to give up power for someone else to get power. It's always been the case. Power is always transferred. It's never created or destroy it. It's always transfer people to other people. This is just no other example. It would take longer because it's a much, I'd say, greater transfer power from a lot of established people to people that aren't established. And I don't think something like this has ever happened before, which is why it's so scary to a lot of people at the top. But it will happen. There's no way it won't because it's always happened. It's just history. So in closing, Anup, as a foreign student who has gone through the legal immigration process, the length of it, the cumbersomeness of it, the people who are supposed to support you in the university system are not people who have gone through that process so they don't understand it, right? And even employers don't have people who know how to recruit and absorb and assimilate a foreign student on a practical training who needs to go on to a work visa. We are in an environment that doesn't understand us. It's almost like they want, they want us to climb trees while we were fish in the water, right? And nobody knows how to help a fish climb a tree. I'm quoting Einstein, right? 
And so if the fish expect is expected to climb a tree and a monkey up a tree is expected to take a deep dive, it's not going to work. How do we, in from your perspective, what advice would you have or what would be food for thought for people to start reconciling this unreconcilable, to start making this a little more palatable? Because our process to becoming a citizen takes more than 15 years. And in that process, if anything happens, you have to leave the country. It doesn't matter where in life you are. Well, the intersection of education policy reform and immigration policy reform is a whole other podcast in itself. So I can't, I can't spell all the reasons why we need to fix things and how we fix them. Because for one, a lot of people aren't interested in having that conversation. And two, the people that are have already been disassociated or dissuaded from doing more than they can. But here's what I can describe. Um, both about how to deal with it and how better we can improve it. So system, like you mentioned, isn't as adequate as it should be. And there are a couple of reasons why, but the best way to navigate that is first to realize that it isn't. A lot of students don't stray beyond asking their counselor things, beyond simply um, talking to the person that allotted to help them by the university about things. But if I'm going to be honest, Reddit, was the number one procurer of all my solutions for all my international student problems throughout the last four years. I looked at some of the similar solution and they had a problem. Sorry, sorry, similar problem and they had a solution. So the international student community is what helps each other at the end of the day more than the sources provided to us do. So I'd say there's already a self-healing element to our community in which we do help each other, but that's few and far between. I shouldn't have to go search a obscure internet forum for help for situations that my school should be able to help me with. So there needs to be a better understanding of people. And they, this can only happen if there are more international students that go work in immigration, that go work in educational reform, that understand and bring with them these experiences to better inform the policies so that they're more inclusive and they work better. But, you know, international students, they only go for the high-paying, flashy jobs. But there has to be, at some point, a compromise where we do start laying the ladder down, helping other people get back in, where we start by helping other people. And that's something that I think would help immediately in the long run, immigration reform on the back of a lot of other things will not touch international students first. They have to address a lot of other problems first, which, you know, I fully agree. Americans should take care of their own first and immigration reform has to first take care of their own. Thank you, Anup. It has been such a pleasure having this conversation. <laughs> and I know we've touched on a variety of things and a shout out there to all the international students who are navigating your own respective journeys. First, make sure you're in a field that is STEM related. If it's not STEM related, none of these other steps will ever fall into place for you because the system is set up in a way that if you're non-STEM, you need to go back to your country. It's simply that direct. And remember, build relationships when you're in school because it's those relationships that are going to help you through the emotional, psychological, and legal navigations. And in that relationship building process, remember, it's okay to ask for help. It doesn't make you less than when you ask for help. It's the same way it doesn't make you superior when you offer to help. As long as you understand it's the ebb and flow just like water, you ask for help and you give help, you're building an environment that is going to sustain you and sustain the entire ecosystem 
because without the ecosystem, there's nothing to sustain any of us. And to the natives of any country who are making sure that the international students have a path forward and have a place to come and be safe and secure, thank you. Because you're the ones who make it possible. And you're the ones who also realize somebody along your generational hierarchy, generational ancestry also came here as an immigrant. So if we keep that in perspective and know that most of the Western nations, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or Canada or the United States, it was all built by immigrants. If we remember that and remember the source of where we came from, then our ability to find a solution for those who come after us is going to be that much more humane.